Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Worker Pete. It's a podcast about workplace culture, psychology, and life. I'm Bruce Daisley. Thank you so much for listening. Thrilled you're joining me today. I've got a real heavyweight of the world of work, of the world of leadership, of management. Linda Gratton is probably one of the two biggest names in terms of workplace culture and thinking about these themes. Her and Adam Grant really sort of are the go-to names when it comes to destinations like Davos, when it comes to the World Economic Forum. She's one of the first people that I've phoned up by organisations. She's a professor of management practice at London Business School. And she's the very successful author of a lot of books that you've probably seen. The 100 Year Life, The New Long Life, the new book that we're going to be talking about today. I mean, The 100 Year Life. So this is a book that sort of deals with the fact that we're now living longer and we need to think about our lives and our careers in far more long-term perspectives. In Japan, that sold a million copies. Imagine that. It's like a cultural phenomenon. And worldwide, it's just like a huge, phenomenal success. So as a result of that, Linda is a go-to thought leader anyway. Her article in the midst of the pandemic about doing hybrid work right was a cover story on the Harvard Business Review. And the link to that is in the show notes along with everything else. She's written a new book, which is called Redesigning Work. And it's specifically trying to think about the themes that all of us are wrestling with right now. Linda takes the perspective that really, if we're going to do this right, we do need to set about trying to redesign work. We actually need to think about what principles are here, about what we want to set about doing. It's a brilliant discussion. We're going to go into some of the themes that you've probably been wrestling with in your own company, some of the themes that you're probably sort of trying to get your head around in terms of how work is changing and, and what work might look like in the future. So we're really going to delve into those themes. Uh, along the way, uh, these, I'm going to give you the link in the show notes for one of the things we discussed, which is the glass door reviews of Goldman Sachs, because we, we have a discussion on that. And, and I think actually the reason why Linda is a voice that everyone wants to listen to is that she's just got such a strong perspective. So you're going to hear really specifically about the themes that she invites people who attend her MBA class at London Business School or people who are really trying to wrestle with big leadership themes. You're going to hear the, the prompts that she gives to them, the questions she gives to them. Really interesting discussion. So here it is. Here's my discussion with Linda Gratton. She's a professor at London Business School and the author of the brand new book that's coming out in the next couple of weeks, Redesigning Work. Here's Linda. 
Linda, I'm so thrilled to have you on. Uh, and it seems like we've been able to get you because you weren't at Davos this week. So that's a, a good opportunity. I'd love you to kick off by just introducing who you are and what you do. Oh, thank you, Bruce. Well, first of all, great to be with you, Bruce. I'm Linda Groughton. I'm Professor of Management Practice at the London Business School. I'm also founder of an advisory organization called HSM Advisory. And I'm mother and a grandmother to an enormous group of kids. <laughs> Fabulous. Now, the great thing about having you on today is it seems like you've been teaching a course on the future of work since 2015. So, I mean, you know, talk about being prepared, talk about being ahead of the game. If you were to mark your own homework, what do you think you predicted right and what do you think you predicted wrong back in 2015? Well, actually, it's even worse than that, Bruce, because I I wrote a book before then called The Shift, which was, you know, the major things that are going to change the world. And of course, as part of this, I looked in the index under P for pandemic. Um, No, there was not any P and any pandemic there. So I totally got that wrong. Um, So but I think lots of other people did. So I'm not really you know, beating myself up on that. What I think, um, what what we got right, of course, was the whole demographic thing. And of course, Andrew Scott and and I were then able to write two great books, 100 Year Life and The New Long Life, about the fact we were all living to 100, which I don't think people had quite understood. Yeah. And then I talked about technology, which we sort of got right. And I talked about social trends, the fact that, you know, family structures were becoming more variable. To be honest, Bruce, and this is why I lead a class at the London Business School with my wonderful MBA students, those things were pretty predictable if you looked around the world, which I do. So my research center looks right across the world. And if you talk to experts, so I didn't think I was being particularly smart. I was just doing what I encourage my students to do, which is to go to the edges of the system to see what's happening and also to try and keep themselves alive to the opportunities now, you, you mentioned the, the books about longevity there. And, and actually, look, you know, visionary books, I think certainly the, the reason why they've got so much attention is because they've helped us reappraise sometimes the, the very short-term approach we take to our lives and our careers. Um, and I guess, you know, in that, with that context there, with that idea that there's a long arc that we're, uh, we're working our way through, I'd love you to take a step back and sort of say, so what do you see as the state of work in 2022? What do, you, what do you think we're looking at for starters? How do you think the pandemic has changed things for, before we even consider the transformations to come? Well, that's just the most important question right now, I think, Bruce. And I'm looking down at my volumes of journals. I'm now on to volume 20. I don't know if you heard, I kept a, a journal from March the 14th thinking, oh, I'll just keep a couple of journals. And that, well, I'm now literally, I can see it in front of me, I'm on to volume 20. And I've kept a very close eye on what's happening. I think it's still pretty unpredictable. You probably know, because I, I wrote what became the front cover of Harvard Business Review on something called doing hybrid right. I do think that hybrid will stay. I think, of course, you know, it, the, the big investment banks, uh, some of the uh, law firms are going to get everybody back into the office. But I think most people do not want to go back to where they are. I think that's a sort of a done deal, really. There's lots of amazing 
experiments going on around the world about how companies are changing the way that work gets done. So I think we're in a really important moment of experimentation, Bruce, which is why your ideas have been so important as well, because we just need to be engaged and excited about what the possibilities are. And I think if I, I'm now 67, of all the time, I've been at London Business School now for more than 30 years. I have never been at a position where I think, okay, now people are now ready for change. It's so interesting you say that because books like yours are really helpful for laying all the pieces out on the table and actually reappraising. There's one stat you give, which is that executives are spending an average of 23 hours a week in meetings. And so as a consequence, they're spending, the average knowledge worker is spending 65% of their day collaborating and communicating. So interesting, isn't it? Because for me, as soon as you see that laid out, you think, wow, we've lost sight of what work actually is to the extent that we think the stuff that holds work together, the connective tissue of work is work. We've sort of lost sight of what work is. And you talk about thinking about workflows. And I just wonder if not enough people seem to have been that reductive, that they've even taken a step back and and dissected what they're looking at. Well, that's a really interesting point. It might surprise people that I actually start the book not talking about people, but talking about work. Because the point I make is, unless we redesign work in a way that's more productive, sooner or later, executives are just going to pull it all back out again, and we'll be just back to where we are. So we've got to ask ourselves, the fundamentals. And the fundamentals are, what is it that I do? So how much of my work is about collaborating with other people? How much is it about coordinating? How much time do I need focus? How important is energy? So for example, my job, which is really writing a lot of the time, is a focus job. So for me, being in the office is the worst possible place to be. I've always worked from my home office here. But for somebody who has a highly coordinating role or a cooperative role, then they have to think differently about how they do it. One thing is certain, as you say, is we have simply, and this is the same with technology, layered everything on top of each other without taking anything out. So because because it's so easy to connect somebody with somebody on a Microsoft Teams or Zoom, we're doing it all the time. I mean, I'm speaking to people, you're perhaps one of them, who are going through 10 Zoom meetings back to back every day, and people are exhausted. So we have to fundamentally ask the question, what do we have to do to be productive? And then from a personal perspective, what do we have to do to learn and also to stay healthy and you know have fun in life? Yeah, you raise a really interesting question about productivity there, because the companies that I've been involved with in the last 12 months have almost without exception, I've been in the room and they've been presenting really good results for the last two years. The reason why this debate about hybrid working and remote working has has stuck is because it's very difficult to argue with your workers that it wouldn't work for us when they're sitting there looking at record figures. But one of the things, of course, that's lost in that is productivity is a measure of output per hour. And a lot of us have been working longer hours. And a focus on getting the work done more efficiently and effectively seems to have slipped between the cracks. And it's very difficult to do anything, but consider that the reason for that is poor management. 
I wonder what your take is on that. How can we redress this? How can we solve the productivity problem? And is management the issue? Well, a great friend of mine is a a woman called Diana Gerson, who stepped down as Chief Human Resource Officer from IBM a couple of months ago, and she's now teaches at Harvard Business School. She and I have written a Harvard Business Review article, which will be out in March of this year, about the role of managers, because we came to exactly the same conclusion, Bruce, that you've come to, which is the connective Mm. tissue in organization is managers. And we just haven't supported them enough. We haven't understood their jobs well enough. And so what we lay out in the HBR article is a fundamental treatise about how we see the role of manager changing. Well, first of all, how crucial it is as the connective tissue, as you rightly say. Secondly, how we have to support these people whose job has fundamentally changed. It's changed from being the, you know, a part of a hierarchy to being much more part of loose teams, often virtual, requiring a whole new set of competencies, particularly around Uh, in terms of work, the scheduling of work, and in terms of people coaching, supporting people, being empathic. And many of them just don't have the time to do so. So Diana and I argue we need to restructure those jobs, but we also need to put a lot more support into how people can be managers. Because I agree with you, it's going to be one of the most important roles in an organization. And we've always, certainly you know, up until recently, we've described them always as the permafrost. Well, what's it like to be somebody in a layer that's described always as the permafrost? So our Harvard Business Review article is a celebration of managers. Tell me, just explain for for me who maybe isn't as up, up to date on it. What what's the permafrost metaphor? Oh well, the permafrost idea is that if you think of the organisation as a sort of triangular hierarchy, where the leader is, you know, full of energy, and the employees are sort of quite energetic, and then in between you have this frosty layer of people who stop things from happening. And and the idea was, you know, leaders would say, you know. I know that we can make this happen, but the managers are getting in the way. And actually what Diane and I are saying is let's liberate the managers. And what's been really interesting, Bruce, uh, coming back to the pandemic and what we learned during the pandemic is that some companies who looked in detail at what was going on, Microsoft being one, TCS being another, who had good data what they found is that company in, in teams where the manager was empathic and listened and was able to coach and counsel, those teams were much more productive. People were much happier. So they've identified that link as being very crucial, particularly in times like we, we've been through and are going through, where there's a lot of ambiguity and quite a lot of stress, frankly, in the system. Yeah, it poses a really interesting question. You know, that, that whole idea of garbage in, garbage out, the idea that, you know, whether it's in, in software development or whether it's in whatever process, that when we put the garbage in, when, when we don't give clear instructions, when we don't give clear parameters, then it's no surprise that what we get out is garbage as well. And it strikes me that we're in an era where most of the innovations we've witnessed, and even there hasn't been a lot of innovations in this field, have been in communication tools. We all sit and we celebrate the fact that the pandemic happened now because had it happened 20 years ago, we might have been on conference calls. We'd have made it work, but would have been on conference calls. Every home would have had a fax machine installed, whatever. There would have been sort of a coping technology. But because 
the innovations we've got have been in Slack, have been in Zoom, have been in Teams. The thing that has expanded is the things that are serviced by them. It actually fundamentally raised a question for me about that permafrost, whether we've got um, a sort of layer of bureaucracy that exists over all organizations that to some extent is the cause of all this slowness and lethargy and disconnection. And actually, you know, maybe there's a big opportunity for technology to help fill this void or for management is potentially the technology and it's an intellectual technology rather than a silicon chip based technology. But it strikes me there's big opportunities for firms to establish advantages in this space. You know, there seems to be a competitive advantage there to be taken from firms who can solve this problem. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. And economic historians have you know, are always pouring over the industrial revolution. And one of the things that they discovered is that when you have a period like the industrial revolution, where you get massive technological advances, those never, ever go into productivity unless and only unless they're accompanied by process innovation. And I think exactly the same thing is happening now, which is we've had huge technological innovations. But if we really want that to make a change the way we work, we have to, it has to be accompanied by process innovations around culture, you know, management skills, the way we workflows, how work gets done in organizations. Because, you know, you'll know this from the software analogies. If there's a mistake and you're simply trying constantly to say, look, look, we've got to solve that mistake. And so we're going to have to put layers and layers and layers into solving it. What we have to do in work is actually to look at the fundamentals and say, we now have to redesign work. We have to redesign workflows because otherwise all we're doing is building the technology on top of something that wasn't serving its purpose anyway, even before the pandemic. To start us off on that process, if someone's sitting there saying we need to redesign our work, there's clearly an expectation about our employees that they're going to have some degree of hybrid working. We need to respect that because, uh, you know, we want to keep retaining the best talent. And so we need to redesign our organization, probably our organizational culture. We need to redesign what our processes are. What are the questions that people, and look, I I recognize you've just written a whole book on this. So, you know, it's it's not as simple to, to give me an answer in two sentences. But what are the things that people should be starting to ask? It's interesting. When I came to write the book, because my own advisory company has been advising companies from the very beginning of the pandemic, I actually decided to think about it as a design process. So what I what I've said and what I believe is it's not one size fits all for everyone. So it's not something that I can say, look, this is what you do. Just get on and do it. So if it's not one size fits all, then you have to design work. And to design work, you need to go through the design cycle, which is to say, I have to understand my people and the sort of jobs they do, the sort of company it is. I have to then build some models of what I think work could be with regard, for example, to hybrid work for those who can do hybrid work. I then need to test it against questions like, is this fair? Um, does it, is it future proofed? Well, we have to bring it all out within five years. Does it support, is it, will it work well with technology? And then we have to actually do it. So I've, 
you know, I, I'm sorry that there isn't just a simple answer to that. And in, in a way, I when I wrote the book, I knew it would be irritating that I couldn't say, okay, this is what you have to do. But basically, in terms of the design mechanism, the first thing is you need to understand jobs, the sort of jobs that are unique to your company, the sort of people you've got who you re- really care and value, uh, value, the networks that you have, because I think networks – are such an important process within organizations. And once you've, once you've got some understanding, Bruce, then you can start moving to saying, well, how do we model work in terms of who works where and when they work and how they work? And I would say with regard to models of work, we focused a lot on place as a variable because lots of us work from home. We liked working from home. We say we want, we don't want to go back to the office full time. I think that makes sense. But of course, time is also something that you can flex. And I think that the conversation I see right now that, that's being had in the newspapers and so on about what about a four-day week, what about changing the way that we work with regard to time is as important as conversations about place. So I would say it's really crucial that we think about about time and place. One of the criticisms and one of the challenges we've got all of this is that there's no shortage of naysayers, whether people who've left the job market have got plenty of opinions about it or the, the media has got plenty of opinions on it. You know, public figures have got plenty of opinions. So as soon as something like working from home comes around, you know, there were headlines in the British newspapers this weekend we're recording, uh, talking about how the government is fed up with complacent workers working from home. And the associations are so stigmatized. You know, the the it's very difficult to have an objective discussion about the right way to do work, possibly because it's become separated from discussions of productivity. If there, if there was clearer demonstrations mm. of productivity, then perhaps it would remove that sting from the from the the, the the sour barbs that are thrown. How do you think you can remove this from a culture war discussion and have an honest debate about it? You know, it, I, I, one of the analogies I make in the book, Bruce, is about the production of cars. You know, if you look at the very early uh, automation of cars, you you could only buy one model. The T Ford, it was one model in one color, black. And then over time, as people became more adept at uh, automation and at the same time as consumers wanted more choice, we're now faced with a massive array of different cars that we can drive. The same thing is going to happen to work. You know, there isn't now a model T Ford type model of work. There's enormous variety out there and lots of experiments. And the thing that I think is going to really drive it is this idea that people now have a lot more personal agency about what they want. And I say to the the companies that I advise, you know, don't just look at your competitors to see what they're doing, because it's very likely that the people you want to retain in your organization are going to move out of your sector entirely and go to an entirely different company. So you need to keep your eye open to what these new innovations are. And there's some amazing innovations about how we work. I I talk about them in the book. You know, one company that says, an investment company that says, you can work anywhere you want for three months a year. 
another company that says you can join us on a on a package that includes pension learning and access to our career development practices but you you can work whenever you want so these are the sort of experiments that i as a researcher keep an eye on because those first mover advantages are really important and those are the things that your employee is going to be looking at this it's really interesting when you look at the people who seem to have been most willing to embrace these changes you know the c suite seems to be less comfortable in general than the office the shop floor worker you know and and I mean that in a knowledge work sense but the average person at their laptop computer seems to be seems to have adapted to this far more willingly than the CEO. And, you know, the CEO of Goldman said that this was an aberration. You've, you cite other few CEOs who've waded in. And as a result of that, it really strikes me as an interesting thing where the whole philosophy that I suspect you've tried to school to, to classroom attendance at business school over the last 20 years is that they need to embrace change and they need to be forward facing. And it seems like it's those C-suites, it's the people who send themselves on executive training courses who probably need to do a bit of catch up right now that they, the, the big cheesies are probably the ones who've been left a little bit behind on this. That strikes me as having two implications. Firstly, I'm really interested whether you've observed that in the classroom. And secondly, it presents huge opportunities for those who are a bit more enlightened, who are like, okay, there's a chance to either differentiate our company here or there's a chance to reduce our cost base here or there's a chance to actually do things in a far more evolved way. I just, I would love your perspective on how the cohort that you normally teach, those business school chief execs, how how they are taking to this change? Well, you know, there's a huge variety there. Some are embracing change. Some don't particularly want to change. You know, I don't have a problem with that, Bruce. When, when the Goldman Sachs uh, CEO said, this is an aberration, I want everybody back to the office, a couple of journalists in fact, the BBC, I was on a BBC program and they said, Linda, you know, isn't this terrible? And I said, no, not at all. Because the role of a CEO is to decide how best to drive productivity and innovation in their organization. Goldman Sachs is a pretty amazing company. If he believes that having people in the office is the best way to do it, I don't have any problem with that. However, that does have implications. And so there will be. And I think it's great that he was straight about that. He said, if you want to be in Goldman Sachs, you have to be in the office. That's fine. We have a choice. So you can choose to join Goldman Sachs. It's quite a complicated process, as we know. Or you can choose to leave it. He's actually telling you what the deal is. And actually, I think that CEOs should be as open and honest as possible about the deal. Because there's lots of other places that very highly talented people can go to, which don't say you have to be in the office all the time. So if he wants highly talented people to be in the office all the time, he's got to produce a deal that they like and where they stay. And of course, the number one part of the deal is he has to pay more. No surprise, massive increase in the starting salaries of people going into investment banking and people going into the corporate law firms that also have these 
you have to come into the office capabilities. So you have to pay people more and you have to show them that being in Goldman is a life enhancing opportunity. Lots of people are going to say, no, that's not what I want. That's their choice. So I think what we're seeing, again, coming back to this idea of variety, is there's a lot of variety in terms of what CEOs are saying about their deal. And you, as the talented potential employee, can decide which one is best for you at that time in your life. There'll be some really talented people who say, actually, I want to spend more time looking after my kids. I don't want to go into the office all the time. That's not for me. That's great. And as you say, there's going to be a lot of other CEOs who say, look, here's another deal. You know, you can work anywhere you want for three months a year and you're going to be potentially attracting some incredibly talented people because of the deal you're giving them. Because I I do get the transactional nature of this. I do get the fact that, you know, the more capital that you've got in the market, the more likely you are to be able to attract a better deal. And so, you know, firstly, the extrapolation of work being inequitable is going to get even more extreme. You know, there'll be people whose employers demand them to come to the industrial estate office that they've got every day. There'll be others who are allowed to hot desk from a luxurious city center place whenever they want. So, you know, the the inequities there. It just strikes me, though, that something that's based on, I would say, to some extent, the insecurity of chief uh, of C-suite people, the insecurity, the the sense of control that they want. It's not just subjectively worse. It's objectively missing out on the the way that technology has afforded us opportunities. Do you have a take on that? You know, for me, the guy, the, the boss of, of Goldman saying we want people in all these dark times, the average, you know, albeit that the average work, the average salary of Goldman in the UK, the published salary is a million pounds, but the, um, the, the, the health implications, it's, it's well researched, the, you know, the health implications of people who work in that industry. It, it just seems a shame actually that a, a very rich man in his, 50s or 60s, is going to make a decision which is so poorly evidenced. I think that's that's my upset with it. Yeah. Well, and, and actually, by the way, I've been advising those sorts of companies for years now and, and have said for years, you've got to change the deal. So I think enough people have given them the evidence of that. But in the end, you know, the market has to decide, both the market that invests in Goldman and the people themselves who invest their own, own, own life in Goldman. And what will happen is if enough people leave or if they find it hard to recruit people, then he will change his view. That's the evidence he's going to be looking for. But I agree with you. that. And, and by the way, let me say that, you know, as I said earlier, I've taught at London Business School now for 30 years, and I have seen a profound shift in leadership. I do think that certainly when we started teaching leadership, it was very much the macho leadership type, you know, um, the, you know, rank everybody, get rid of the last 10%, the, the sort of whole uh, GE, Jack Welsh sort of leadership. That is so far from the current reality of leaders. By the way, that's in part because we've got a lot more women in, in senior leadership positions. Um, and we've just got more diversity. But I um, I have some amazing leaders who teach on my program for me at London Business School and who I talk about in the book who are absolutely clear that we need to redesign work and we need to think entirely more creatively 
about the sort of deal we have with employees. And frankly, those are the leaders that we respect, that we like, that we want to be with. So in a way, the market does work, but it works because you follow the leaders that you feel are most in tune with your own values. And I think there is a lot of leaders out there who totally get the idea that work has to change. You know, they went through the pandemic just like everybody did. They lost, you know, friends and, and family just as we all did. They were sitting in their rooms at, at, for, talking to a Zoom just as we all did. And actually, I think that's had a profound impact on how quite a number of leaders are thinking about their future and about the future of their employees. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, a market works most effectively when it's got perfect information. And, you know, to some extent, the, my issue I take with like organisations like Goldman is they spend so much PRing and so much time winning the ear of influencers like Adam Grant, like big iconic names, that they, they're set about subverting that correct information. It would be kind of nice, just as a, a thought experiment, if certain jobs had to have health warnings on them. You know, th the people working here have got an increased incidence of anxiety and depression because, you know, that might be in service with better information. But actually, you, you do remember, Bruce, that a whole bunch of Goldman Sachs young young analysts came out some, you know, about, about eight months ago, didn't they? And they did a presentation just to show how toxic the culture was. And of course, Glassdoor is brilliant at that. I mean, we, we don't have perfect information. I, I agree with you. But anyone who was thinking of joining a company, they need to look at the Glassdoor ratings to find out what people inside that organization say about it. And you, have a look at it for Goldman. Yeah, I will. I will not only do that. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, so, so I guess you know one of the things is that the pillars of what we've learned about work are going to fundamentally change. You've mentioned our relationship with offices is going to be different. Just looking forwards, if you were sort of going to use your crystal ball, do you think work will be a better experience for most people in five years, or a worse experience, or maybe too fragmented to say? I'd say two things. One is it will be for those people who are knowledge workers with valuable skills. I think the power between employee and employer has absolutely shifted. It was shifting anyway during the pandemic. But I think the fact that we're now in a war for talent, which was entirely predictable, by the way, from a demographic perspective, even before the pandemic, I think that it has meant that employees have a bigger say in what they want. So no question about that. And I personally would be incredibly disappointed if we don't come out of this with better ways of working. And, and that's, of course, why I do all my webinars and books and so on to try and encourage that. However, as you very rightly say, Bruce, inequality is on the increase. One of the, the points that I make when I teach my students is that all the trends that I follow, the demographic trends, the social trends, the, uh, the economic trends, uh, the technical trends, all result in greater inequality. So if you just let the system play its way through, then you will get greater inequality. For example, highly educated people live 10 years longer than less educated people. Highly educated people's job is much less likely to be automated. Highly educated people are much more likely to have stable families and build, bring their children up in a stable family. That's 
We know that that data is very clear. Part of what I am very involved in is to look at all of those people in gig jobs, for example, in very low pay jobs, in zero hours contract jobs, where in fact, the future doesn't look particularly rosy for them. And so I think it's really important that we address the fact that for a proportion of the population, the educated particularly, life is going to get better, I think. But for another proportion, particularly those with, with low education in low paid jobs, there isn't necessarily anything one can see in the horizon that says, okay, these jobs are going to get better. Wow. It's got big social implications, doesn't it? It has big implications for the way we live. If we're going to end up with a real um, difference between the, the lived experience of, of different groups. Oh, yeah. I mean, to be honest, Bruce, that's been happening for some time. You know, the gentrification of neighbourhoods, the mm. fact, you know, that, that wonderful book by Robert Putnam, Bowling Alone, the fact that we don't meet socially, bowling, or that's already been in play. But if you if you think about, as you say, the lived experience of me sitting here in Primrose Hill in my study, loving working from home, and the guy outside delivering my standing desk as he did yesterday, our experiences of work are very different, as indeed are they from my son, who's an A&E doctor and certainly can't work from home. So I do think that's why, by the way, in the book, the final chapter it is about fairness and justice. And it's about saying we have to tackle these issues, that it's not fair to talk about hybrid work as if it's everybody can do it because everybody can't. So we have to be very thoughtful about everybody who's working, not just the highly educated people. Uh, Linda, I'm so immensely grateful for so much of your time and for you to, Thank to you, share Bruce. your thoughts. Thank you so much. When does the book come out? Oh, the m- book comes out on March the 14th. And, and do does- also think about getting the audio, because as Bruce and I were just saying, I have just spent, I don't know, how many hours in the <laughs> studio, Bruce. So please listen. If you like my dulcet tones, there's a lot more of that in the audio. Thank you to Linda. Like I said, the Goldman Sachs Glassdoor reviews are in the show notes. I've also included the article that she talked about, which was the, the Harvard Business Review one. And I've also given a link to some of the content that's going to be in the forthcoming article in Harvard Business Review that she uh, that she mentioned there. So that, that one about uh, some of the, the emerging themes of management in the hybrid era. Thank you for listening. The only thing I ever ask is if you've got the opportunity, subscribe to the newsletter and you'll find that again in the show notes. The newsletter sort of covers these themes on a weekly basis. I've been Bruce Daisley. Feel free to link into me to connect with me on other social media as well. Thank you for listening. Grateful for your company today. See you next time. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.